What's up, guys? Welcome to Birdwatch, New Orleans Pelicans podcast powered by NOLA.com. I'm Christian Clark, the Pelicans beat writer for NOLA.com, here with Jeff Nowak. Hey, y'all. It is Monday afternoon, uh, a little more than 24 hours after Pelicans matinee game win over the Minnesota Timberwolves. They got some revenge for one of their worst losses of the season. Tuesday, they, they put up 135 points, still lost by four. Uh, and they were able to come back a couple days later and beat the Timberwolves 120 to 107. You know, a couple things that stood out about this game: the starters were fantastic, and that's pretty much been the case in all 17 games that they've played together. The bench was not so much. Nicola Melli made a couple of shots, but the bench as a whole struggled. They, I think they they missed JJ Redick a little bit, but they were able to win. I mean, they they were able to win one that. They really, frankly, had to have if if they want to stay alive in this playoff race. And you know, probably the biggest takeaway or bullet point or whatever was Drew Holiday was just phenomenal in this game. He went for a season high thirty seven. I think this probably was the best game I've ever seen him play in a Pelicans uniform. He played really clean too. He had nine rebounds, eight assists, only one turnover. Made eight of nine free throws. Free throw line has, has been an issue for him this year. But I mean, Drew in particular was absolutely fantastic on both ends in this one. Watching him make free throws was so cathartic after some of the issues they've had this season. Because he's he, the free throw line problems are so baffling to me. I don't understand it. He's a confident player. He's been shooting free throws his whole life. And he gets up there in crunch time. And it's, it's a different shot. He shot a technical in a game, I want to say, against the Mavericks. And I think you tweeted about it. It's like, why is Drew Holiday taking free throws or taking technical free throws? It's it's baffling. But he hit eight and nine, and I think that that's a good sign in terms of just the confidence of him being willing to take over a game. I think this game and the game in Memphis were the two. Okay, Drew Holiday is leading this team to a win type games. Yeah, and I'm yeah. not sure there have been many others you can point to and say, okay, he's the difference in this game versus you know what happened on. Tuesday? I think the Pelicans are such a frustrating team because they're so good at the really hard stuff, but they're so bad at the really easy stuff. Like we've seen, you know, Lonzo and Zion hook up for those full court alley oops. There's there's two of them in this game. The the first one in particular was just one of the coolest plays I've ever seen on a basketball court. Like <laughs> that didn't look like it it should be real. It looked like something out of a video game. Um, I I can't believe like the pace and precision that that Lonzo throws those three quarter. Aliyups and and Zion obviously is an incredible finisher. Is that um, the one that went off the backboard? You think of a different game. This I'm was thinking of a different game. Yeah, this was just like the frozen rope. Oh, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Zion just flushed it. They do stuff like that routinely, but yet they dribble the ball off their foot. They dribble it out <laughs> of bounds. They they can't make free throws. I mean, after the game, Alvin Gentry, you know, his comments it sounded like a guy who coached a team that lost by thirty points, not a team that that got it done pretty comfortably on the road yeah and you know he's been very critical of guys passing up shots as you've reported and uh josh hart is in one of the most painful shooting funks to watch that i have ever witnessed for a guy with no like obvious mechanical flaws in his shot to be that off he was 0 for 6 against the timberwolves in the Mavericks game, he was 0 for 7 or 0 for 8. Melly was also 0 for something in that game until he hit the game tying three at the end of regulation. But 
he, you know, he's got to be out there because he's so important on the defensive end and, and he's such a great rebounder. But the last few games, you've run into the same issue that you ran into with Kenrich Williams early in the season where you want him on the floor. He makes those great hustle plays, those winning type plays. Like they talk about Marcus Smart, Mr. Winning Plays. He makes those plays. He's that type of player, but he just can't hit, hit a shot right now. Yeah, it's. It is a little frustrating to watch. I, I want to hone in on the turnovers issue in, in particular because the Pelicans turned it over 25 times in this game. It's it's not often you see a team turn over 25 times and win by double digits. That that almost never happens. Lonzo Ball had seven. Brandon Ingram had five. Turnovers have kind of been something that have hounded the Pelicans all season long. They're, they're 27th in turnover percentage this season. I think that the way they play, they're naturally going to turn the ball over a lot. When you just get or up and down to the degree that they are they're just going to happen because you know you're moving so fast um you know the windows are a lot tighter you're, you're trying to make decisions quickly you know I get that and I'm a believer that Alvin Gentry is right like for the Pelicans to be the best version of themselves they have to play fast and frankly I think when you have Lonzo Ball at point guard and Zion Williamson at power forward it'd be foolish not to try to play fast those guys that's such big parts of their games, really. I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense to get up and down. But that said, I think they could still be doing a much better job of, of protecting the ball. It's something that Gentry said. You know, Lonzo, I think, can rein it in a little bit. He's he's mostly been playing you know, really well the, the past couple of weeks. I think Drew Holiday, he took care of the ball in this game. He only had one turnover, like I mentioned. But he's especially someone who can rein it in. Because, you know, Lonzo is like top, top five in both touches and passes, like, you're just going to turn the ball over a lot when the ball, you've got the ball all the time. But like, if you're the off guard, like Drew Holiday is, then you can't be having these, these high turnover games. And that's something that the Pelicans really have to cut down on. I mean, I I wish there was like somebody went through and just diagnosed or, or evaluated unforced errors like they have in tennis. (laughs) Like, I wonder if there was an unforced errors percentage, I guarantee you the, the Pelicans would be like bottom three. There's one play specifically that really jumps out in terms of Drew Holiday making a decision that kind of belies the fact that he's a 30-year-old NBA veteran who's been on all these teams. Uh, And it was late against the Timberwolves. The Pelicans were down either three or four points. They In the final minutes, they needed a bucket. And he tried to push the ball ahead. He threw a three-quarter court pass to Zion that was short. The defender got there and tipped it back, and it ended up turning into... Uh, Jake Lehman layup the other way and it was the type of play that you're just like this is what Drew Holiday is supposed to be there to prevent you know he's the veteran presence who should be able to realize in that situation you know you don't need a low percentage quick hitter you need a basket you need to run a play or get the ball into someone's hands who can make a play happen and that was just a really bizarre decision in that moment and they lost that game you know, they lost the next night, and I actually thought they played much better the next night. I thought they bounced back really well to get that game to overtime against a very good Mavericks team who was hitting shots. Chris Dapps was knocking down shots. Doncic was in his bag. He's always in his bag. But, yeah, I, I agree. It's just dumbfounding at times when you watch these things happen. But uh, I thought they bounced back really well against the Heat. They've been playing much better defense the last few games. Well, Pelicans killer, Jake Lehman, had a poster dunk. He he kind of got Derek Favors a little bit. I'm not going to lie. I, I feel some pride anytime a white guy is able to, you know, 
dish out a poster dunk instead of be on the receiving end of it, you know, or, or so often on the receiving end of it. And he hung on the rim too. He made sure they could get a good picture of it. Now he, he was, he was good. Malik Beasley crushed him in the first game. I think they did a much better job against him in the second time around. You know, they held the Timberwolves 107 points. This is a team they could not stop, what, four days, five days earlier. They went for 139 in regulation. Yeah, I, I mean, this is the type of thing that you see from a team like this. Yeah, Malik Beasley went 8 for 20 in the second meeting. He was an insane 11 for 13, a Zion-esque 11 for 13 <laughs> in the first meetup. So, I mean, competing on defense is something that they don't do consistently, and you see games where you're just like, why can't this team stop anybody? And the last two games they've done that, this is just what you signed up for with this team. I'm going to toot my own horn a little bit here. As soon as Malik Beasley got traded to the Timberwolves, I was like, oh, he's putting up huge numbers. Uh, <laughs> I felt pretty confident about that. Malik started a stretch of games for the Nuggets last year when they were dealing with injury issues, tore it up. He's got one of the prettiest jumpers you'll see in the entire league, but I don't need to go on that tangent. Um, yes, the defense was much better against the Timberwolves the second time around. To the Pelicans' credit, they limited the Timberwolves after a lot of their turnovers. I don't think the damage was as bad as it, as it could have been. They, they got back in defense after they made their mistakes. It was just an overall a much better defensive effort. And really, I, I mean, I thought the biggest issues were when the bench players were in in this game because the starters tore it up. Uh, the Pelicans outscored the Timberwolves by 29 points in the starters' minutes. I think that's, that's pretty staggering. If you just look at the 17 games that the starters have played together, and by the starters I mean Lonzo Ball, Drew Holiday, Brandon Ingram, Zion Williamson, and, and Derek Favors— the Pelicans have been pretty dominant. They're posting a 118 offensive rating, a 92 defensive rating. They're outscoring opponents by 26 points per 100 possessions. That's been pretty incredible. I threw this out on Twitter, and I'm going to ask you, how many games do you think the Pelicans would have won this season if they just had average injury luck? And just so we're clear on this, I'm just going to say Zion missed, I don't know, 12 games instead of 43, and we'll say Derek Favors doesn't miss that eight-game stretch because of personal reasons. If those two things are different, how many games do you think this team is going to win? From the start of the season. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, You know, I would put it right at the over-under that Vegas gave them, which would have been, you know, somewhere around 46, 48 wins. I still don't think that they would have been a top six team. I think they would have been the eighth seed, but they would have had a handle on the eighth seed, whereas now they're looking up at it uh, Memphis, I think, would, would have still done their thing. And you would have seen them kind of hold that eight seed confidently toward in the in the t- latter half of the season where they have this really easy schedule and they could coast to the end with a two or three game lead. Th- they would have still had a lot of criticism because part of the reason that Zion was able to hit the floor kind of running, I think, was because he had 44 games to like download the offense and get his mind into what the team was doing and do that. I think him coming in to start the season, I think there would have been a lot more criticism about how he was being used. Whereas Brandon Ingram had already established his role in the offense. It's easy to forget that Brandon Ingram was not a sure thing going into the season. So I I think you would have still seen them be about a 500 basketball team, and then they would have picked it up in the stretch that they did anyway, you wouldn't have seen that 13-game losing streak. They would have probably gone. It was a brutal stretch. They would have probably still gone 5-8, and 4-9, and nine, but they wouldn't have lost 13 in a row. That really just kind of drove them 
into the crust of the earth confidence-wise. So I, I disagree with you slightly on the Zion point. I think that he pretty much would have torn it up from game number one. It, it, it looked that way in the preseason. I think that you are like the Pelicans are 11 and nine since Zion came back. That that puts you on a 45 one pace. I don't think you could just assume 11 and nine for those first 20 games. Lonzo Ball had to work through some serious issues at the beginning of the year. I don't think it's safe to assume that even if it's Zion been around, that he would have been this player. Uh, Nicolo Melli was horrible. Uh, to start his NBA career, and I think he's developed into a pretty valuable bench piece. Like, I think Nicole Melli is a valuable player now. Like, I, I know I kind of joke all the time about Peter Mutter Melli time, and it's this fun thing, but I really do think he's a useful player for this team now, and he was struggling to adjust to NBA speed, uh, the distance of the three-point line, how fast uh, defenders close out toward the beginning of the year. You see that with a lot of European players, I think. So I think that they are somewhere just ahead of a 500 team. I would have, if they had an injury luck, I would have predicted somewhere with like 43, 44 wins. I think that they are comfortably the eight seed, possibly even challenging for the six or seven. But, you know, if if Zion had just been healthy, I, I'm just wondering about how different the conversations about this team are, about the job Alvin Gentry has done. I mean, I don't know. I mean, when I, when I just see how well this starting five is playing together, I, I like the way this team looks, really, overall, when it's healthy. For sure. And the bench is a weird thing because there are games where they've played very well as a unit and, you know, coming in as that second unit. And when Melly's knocking down shots, when Hart's doing his hustle thing and knocking down shots, you have a very kind of distinct advantage because they have these very unique players that they can plug in and out and like Zion can play the five and it really opens up space for other guys. But then you have games like against the Mavericks where the off the, the starters were dominating and the second unit just did not get it done. Uh, if you look at the starting lineup in terms of just three point shooting, they went 13 for 29 and that included a Derek favors <laughs> three point attempt, which probably should be eliminated, but whatever. Uh, the bench, if you just look at Melly, Etwan Moore, Josh Hart, who Melly hit that shot, that crazy shot over Chris Epps at the end, they went one for 12 from three-point range. Frank kept them afloat at a certain point. He went three for five from three-point range. He went four for seven overall. He had 12 points. But you can't have that type of shooting off the bench and expect to beat the Mavericks in Dallas Um even if even if you have three starters and double figures and that Drew Holiday with nineteen points, you just it's not gonna it's not gonna happen. One of the things I think Zion does for you is he just he just raises your baseline so much. You I think with him back, the Pelicans have, have generally beat almost all the teams that they should have beat. Uh that that first loss to the Timberwolves is kind of really the only exception and against teams that, you know, I think have similar talent level or even a, a better talent level They've showed that they can at least be competitive. I mean, I, I thought the Mavericks, you know, they have two studs in Kristaps Porzingis and Luka Doncic. Both those guys played really well. I thought it was mostly a good performance from the Pelicans in Dallas. I thought they played pretty well. I mean, they just they just lost to a, a better team on the road, I, I thought, was really the story in that one. And, you know, the late game issues we could, we could talk about later. But I think they're what they're capable of on a night-in and night-out basis is just so much higher with Zion and... Is it is it really even a, a take to say that Zion is the team's best player? <laughs> no, it is not. 
Um, I mean, the best NBA player right now, I'd say Drew Holiday. End-to-end quality. I think that he's the better basketball player right now, but there is no player more talented physically or aspirationally <laughs> than Zion Williamson, and I don't think it's that close. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think in, in terms of winning and losing, like I mm-hmm. think Zion moves the needle the most for you. No, oh, no question, no question. And just even in terms of like the defense has to constantly be thinking about what he's going to do and how they're going to combat him. No one else on the floor draws attention that way. It's very similar to how Anthony Davis or and or LeBron do or James Harden, where you have to game plan for them, and even then you still can't come up with anything that's really going to slow them down. You can only hope to contain them. Like the joke, you can only hope to contain him. That is actually true when it comes to Zion Williamson. Yeah, I mean, Zion is just so consistent. That's the thing about him. I mean, yes, he can be a lot better on the defensive end, but I'm just talking, you know, in, in terms of scoring the basketball efficient efficiently, He's just going to bring that night after night after night. I mean, we talked a little about the the baby Shaq parallels <laughs> on an earlier podcast, but there have been two rookies in NBA history to average north of 25, 20 points on 55% shooting or better. Shaq and Zion. Um, that's pretty absurd. I just counted up. Pelicans have won 28 games. I counted up the number of games they have won against teams with a winning record. And that does not include the Grizzlies. They are 500. How many wins this season do you think they have against teams with records of 500 or better? Uh, nine? Close. Eight. Oh, wow. That was pretty close. That was pretty close. And But keep in mind, the Denver win they had was, was legit. That was in the entire Denver roster. That was early in the season. The first Denver win. And the second one, to be honest. Both those wins against Denver were good. The win against the Pacers was good. The win against the Heat the other night was a legit win. There was no one obviously out with injuries. But that can't be said for the Clippers win. They didn't have Kawhi Leonard. The Rockets win. They didn't have anybody. And there was at least one other game that they played a, played a team without one of the star players. So the truth of this season is they have remained competitive by beating bad basketball teams. And that's not a bad thing. No. Because you have to be, to be a consistently good basketball team, you have to be able to beat the bad teams. You're not going to, like, look at the, look at the Sixers who can't win a road game. They're 28 and 2 at home. And they're the sixth seed in the West. If you can't go on the road, I'm sorry, in the East, if you can't go on the road and beat a bad team, you're not going to be a consistently competitive team. So that's a good that's a good trait to have, that they don't drop games that they should win. But this is a young team, and they have to build up that confidence that they can beat the Mavericks in an overtime game. Yeah, I, th- I think that what we've seen is when Everyone is healthy, and with the strides that guys like Lonzo and Melly have made, they are a slightly above-average basketball team. And with how many young players are on this team, I think that's you know a pretty good place to be. We should talk about Lonzo Ball a little bit more, too, and just the way that, that he's shooting the ball. Um, in his past four games, Lonzo is 21 of 35 from three-point land. He's raised his uh, three-point percentage on the season to above 38% on six-and-a-half attempts per game. You know, that's pretty decent volume. I, I don't think anyone predicted that, that Lonzo Ball was going to be a 38% three-point shooter coming into this season. You know, the biggest change that he's made is worked with Fred Vinson to revamp his mechanics. You know, last season and even at UCLA, we saw him releasing the basketball from the left side of his head 
um, pretty much the exact opposite way of the way kids are taught to shoot it. Uh, this year he's shooting it on the right side. It, it just is a much cleaner looking stroke. And, you know, I think Fred Vincent obviously deserves a lot of credit. He's worked with Brandon Ingram too. And, you know, I've, I've said that publicly, but I think too, when a guy, you know, makes strides like this, you have to credit him the most. Like Lonzo's the guy out there doing it in the games. So we should definitely give Fred credit, but like, Yes, we should give Lonzo the most credit. Right, and when you are asked to make significant substantive changes to your jump shot, one that you have used to great success throughout your entire life, up until the NBA when that shot just gets a little longer, you know, it would be very easy for when things don't go well to just revert right back. But he's been consistent. He's had balance on that shot. He had a really nice shot the other night where he caught it on the run. And if you look at some of the earlier career jump shots from Lonzo Ball. He shoots angles to his left eye, even though he's a right-handed shooter, and then he's constantly wanting to fade left on that shot. And there was one shot, I want to say it was against the Mavericks. He hit seven three-pointers in both the Timberwolves game and the Mavericks game, uh, which is a tightest career high. Apparently, he just doesn't want to get that 8-3. He caught the ball on the run and then just on a dime, rose straight up. It was like a Ray Allen-looking just catch straight up release. And that's something he would have never done in the first two years of his career. He would have caught that and faded and probably left it short. But he he knocked it down. And that's the type of thing that you want to see from him is the consistency in that jump shot. And once he improves and other teams believe that he has improved, that will change things down the road because teams won't be able to sag off and double Zion in the post when he's out there on the perimeter. I think this is a hugely important development for the Pelicans because if Zion Williamson is going to be your best player, and as I just said, I think he kind of already is, then you're just going to have to surround him with shooting. I think that we've seen to, to you know make deep playoff runs, it's really hard to have you know more than one non-shooter on the floor. You know, I, I think that as, as the Pelicans get further along in this, that they're going to have to, you know, pair Zion next to next to a five man who who is able to shoot from behind the three point arc. I think Derek Favors is perfectly fine, you know, at, at this stage in the Pelicans' life cycle. But it's huge that that Lonzo can be that that knockdown three point threat next to Zion Williamson. And I'm I'm personally a believer in the changes that he's made. I mean, like you said, it's it is so hard to you know not revert back to the jump shot that you've used since you were like six, seven, eight years old and all the way up through, you know, your second year in the NBA. Uh, It is so hard to make drastic changes like that in the game. It is. And and here's kind of a very inside baseball type adjustment that I have seen the last few games, especially, and it's where Lonzo Ball is taking a lot of his shots from. If you watch him throughout the game, he's not setting up on that line. He's setting up about a foot and a half, two feet back of it, um, especially when he's shooting from from the wings above the break, where obviously you can only shoot from so far on the baseline, or I'm sorry, on the in the corners. <laughs> Otherwise, you'd be on the bench. But if you watch, I, I tweeted out a video uh, during the Timberwolves game where you can see him. He has plenty of space if he wanted to step in and take that 24 foot, whatever it is, shot. He didn't. He drifts back to about two feet. He sets, he knocks down the shot. So I decided to look back at his splits from December to January to February. Uh, In December, 
three-point attempts within 25 feet. So that's basically right on the line. He was 15 for 41, 36%. Outside of that, 25 to 29 feet, which is a bit farther back, 18 for 46, 39%. So he's about even. He's about 50%, like within 25 feet, outside 25 feet. The next month, he shot really well in January. Shots inside 25 feet, 8 for 34, 23%. Outside 25 feet, 31 for 72, 43%. So he completely adjusted where he was taking his shots from in that month. And that trend has continued into February where, you know, he took 17 three-pointers inside that and 38 outside of 25. So that's something that he has changed. He has adjusted that. And you're seeing you're seeing the results. He shot 43% on that type of shot in January. Um, and that's kind of the thing that you look at and you're like, okay, He's actively doing things that that work for him. He's understanding where to shoot from. He's understanding how to be balanced, where to align the ball, how to keep that rotation stable and not just drift left and right. And that's the type of thing that leaves you kind of saying, okay, this is a, this could be a sustainable thing because it's not just luck. He's not just taking that same kind of funky jump shot and it happens to be going in this week. It was funny looking back at some of the evaluations and critiques of his shot going into the NBA draft. Lonzo actually shot it pretty well in his loan season at UCLA. So there's some debate of like, oh, do you mess with it or not? Um, He didn't shoot it so well in his first two seasons with the Lakers. My favorite comparison was uh, some writer for CBS Sports said his jump shot looked like someone trying to balance a reptile on his arm. I thought that was pretty good. It was like, you know, like Steve Irwin, like trying to show an iguana to the camera or something like that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it, it, like Lonzo's, <laughs> Lonzo's right arm was like tilted to the left. It looked like a, a broom leaning up against a wall. Um, so that one, that one kind of made me laugh when I when I stumbled back across that one. But it's not just the outside shot either. I I think one of my biggest criticisms of Lonzo early in the year was that he just wouldn't drive it inside. Um, I still think there are sometimes when he short circuits when he is driving into the teeth of defense. But I think for the most part, he's done a much better job of that attacking confidently, um, just going up and finishing. I mean, he's six foot six. He's got pretty si- pretty good size for a point guard. There's no reason why he can't just be an okay finisher inside. Like, he's not a jump-out-of-the-gym guy. Lonzo is very, very fast, especially end-to-end. I, I don't think people realize how, how fast he is end-to-end. Not a great leaper, but he should be at least a- an average finisher when he gets in there. Yeah, and... There have been a lot more times later in the season that you've seen him go in and try to finish as opposed to try to just like lob it eye off the glass. And that's what you want to see. You know, he's not a good free throw shooter. He knows that. Everyone knows that. You still have to set that muscle memory that you're going to try to dunk on someone's face when you have an opportunity. The game against the Lakers, he and Brandon Ingram, they tried to do that. And JaVale McGee said no. But even when it doesn't work, you just got to do it. It's like a, it's it's like throwing a fastball instead of a changeup. And... You know, if you only throw change-ups, they're going to sit on the change-up. They're going to hit it 500 feet. So it's important that even when it doesn't work out, it's it's just something that he needs to get better at, and he has been better at it. Even though if, if you look, I guarantee you his two-point shooting percentage has actually gone down uh, since the beginning of the season because he's taking more shots and some of them aren't going in. I think, too, when you you know are playing in the pick-and-roll or whatever and you're only looking to pass – Teams just start sitting on that pass, and that, that leads to more turnovers. Like, you saw that a lot earlier this season where teams just knew you are not going to try to, 
you know, beat the big to the basket, even if you have a half step on him, we're just going to sit on your pass and, and, and shade over to this role, man. It's very important for him to, when he has that, that half step or like in the pick and roll, when the big man is trying to kind of split the distance between him and, and Lonzo's role, man, that he attacks the backs it and, and tries to finish. But I like what I've seen from Lonzo uh, these past couple of weeks. It does look like the point guard of the future, and, and that was in doubt at the beginning start of the year. I mean, I, I really do think that you know Lonzo's slow start was one of the most significant reasons why the Pelicans were 8-26 and at one point or whatever it was. All right, Birdwatch fans, I want to take a couple of minutes to talk about something near and dear to my heart. Food. Everyone wants it. Everyone needs it. Sometimes you just don't have it. And we have a solution. Instacart. All you got to do is sign in, pick what you want from local stores. You can go Costco, you can go Rouse's, you can even go Petco if your dog's hungry. And someone will pick those up, put them in a shopping cart, and bring them to your house in as little as one hour. Sounds kind of nice, right? You can find all the items you usually buy. Instacart will highlight deals to help you save money. And they always pick the freshest produce so you don't get those bananas that are older than you are. And hey, if you're like me, you can still just hang out at Costco to get those samples. But you don't have to worry about the lines at the end. So if you want to check out Instacart, follow the link in our show notes to let them know we sent you and help support our show. Your first order, over $35. Free shipping. So get that 2XL box of cheese that you've been craving for the last four hours. Or I want to give it to me. Anyway, again, follow that link in our show notes to uh, help support our show and test out Instacart for your food. Thanks. So, Jeff, I wish we didn't have to talk about this. Uh, I really wish this wasn't something I had to deal with during my first season covering the NBA full-time, but the coronavirus is already starting to affect uh, the way we're going to cover the game. Um, the NBA, the MLS, the NHL uh, all issued a joint statement here in the last couple of minutes while we are just sitting here basically saying that media is no longer allowed in locker rooms and that all I guess press conferences have to be conducted outside a locker room. Media must remain six to eight feet away. I don't know how this this helps that much. If and I guess this makes me think that we're we're probably not far away from just fans altogether. You know, not being allowed to go to games because I don't know. I mean, I, I guess if you're gonna do something like this, then I mean, does it help at all if you have like twenty thousand fans? crammed into a, a small arena right it's putting the cart a bit before the horse but you know it's it's not something that they're doing because they think the media is what's going to get these folks sick i mean there's times where you go for a loose ball and you're sitting in the lap of someone courtside it's a whole lot closer than the media will ever get to a player in a locker room and uh you know if there's a media representative sick you can tell them to go home uh, you can't tell the fans to go home. So I just think that this is kind of setting the stage for what will eventually be, okay, no no fans courtside. I think that will be the next step. You know, those courtside folding chairs will be swept off the court and there'll be um, some sort of buffer between the fans and the players like you see in college a lot of the time. 
like Vanderbilt was a good example where the floor is elevated and there's really no one within however however far. But it's scary to see the leagues reacting. I don't know, you know, what it'll solve, but it's going to get worse before it gets better, I think, in, the, in how they're reacting to it. Yeah, I mean, I, as far as the NBA goes, um, basketball-related income, that's split up between the players and the owners. And if you're you know, not letting fans into the game, that's, that's going to affect your BRI. So like this, if it gets worse and it, it gets to that point where, you know, fans aren't being allowed in, that's, that's something that could potentially lower the salary cap next year. So, you know, I, it's, it's getting pretty serious. The league reportedly sent a memo to teams Friday, already telling them to prepare for the possibility of playing games in, in empty stadiums. Uh, that's something we've seen, you know, a handful of times, in the last couple of years, I think the one that comes to mind recently is 2015. There was an Orioles game. It was played at Camden Yards in, in front of no people. This was not due to a virus or anything. This had to do with Freddie, Freddie Gray and, you know, there's protesting in the streets and all of that. But it's going to be eerie. And, man, it, it's, just, it's just weird that the Pelicans could be, you know, potentially trying to make the playoffs and, and in the heat of a playoff race and, they're playing at an empty Smoothie King Center, potentially. Right. And uh, I believe LeBron has already come out and said, I'm not playing a game without fans there. You know, And whether he has the ability to actually make good on that, I think that that's a sentiment that won't be held exclusively by LeBron. You know, these a lot of these players are very invested in the fans that come to see them, and they... They're not going to sit there and say like, "Oh, these guys might be sick. Get them out of here." Like these, without the fans, the players aren't on the platform that they are. You know, we only have an NBA because people want to pay to see and experience the NBA. If this league didn't have any fans, it would just be a rec league. So I, I think that's important to remember. But yeah, it's going to be weird to see if if that does happen. We can just kind of go out and into the future where it does happen. And what do you even compare that to? I mean, so the Freddie Gray situation, that was, you know, there was a lot of civil stuff that was going on. There was protests and it was for the safety of folks going in and out of the game. This wouldn't be that. So how how would they react to it? Would they just pump in crowd noise? Like it would be weird for these players to suddenly go out there and just play a pickup game in silence, you know? And the only people witnessing it are on, like, would they let the media even in to watch? Would they, you know, would they still play, like, defense chants with no one to to, to return the call? Uh, would Pierre go out there and bang the drum and get as, just as many responses as he would anyway? Uh, you know, it'll, wow. it'll be interesting to see. You managed to work a won't-bow-down drum joke in there. Nice. Yeah, it's like a, like a verbal subtweet. Um, well, I think the one silver lining... And you got to search hard, but you could hear exactly what Alvin Gentry is saying to the refs. You know, Alvin Gentry is having a, you know, has a lot to say to the refs during a game. <laughs> if you, if you haven't paid attention, um, I, I did not think that that Timberwolves game on Sunday was a particularly well officiated game. I think that Alvin let them know about it, but yeah, I would I would love to hear everything that Alvin is saying. He'd he'd probably have to chill out a little bit. Yeah, because you would hear it on the broadcast. There's nothing to diffuse that sound. They're gonna have to turn down like parabolic mics on the sideline. Like, um, I'd also look forward to what whatever Josh Hart is saying to the opposing bench after he makes a quarter <laughs> three, because it seems like he's always got something to say. 
Right. There was a the the probably the best comparison you can make, which in terms of just sound and like diffusion of noise, where it's just a dull roar. The Knicks and the Rockets played a game in 2017 where they decided we're not going to play music, um, and it was very bizarre. Like you saw these guys go out there and they did the introductions, and then it was just like, oh okay, we're not listening to Young Jeezy today. We're just yelling, yay, James Harden. Uh, oh, it wasn't the it wasn't the Rockets. It was the Warriors. So it was yay, Steph. And like during timeouts, it was just quiet. The fans weren't cheering. It was just like kind of like white noise in the background and the players were sitting in a huddle and then they came back. It was like a high school game without cheerleaders. It It's just a very bizarre thing to watch. They didn't even do t-shirt tosses or in sponsored like in-game stuff. If it does, that does come to pass, you know, and whether it's whether it's something that has to happen or is them just kind of reacting to the criticism of putting 18,000 people inside of a basically a petri dish and saying hopefully nothing goes wrong. Uh, I don't know, but it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. Pelicans have three more games uh, on this West Coast road trip. They're going to Sacramento, Utah, and then L.A. to face the Clippers. Their next home game is a week from when we're recording, uh, Monday, March 16th, against the Atlanta Hawks. Once they they make it out of this road trip, the schedule gets really easy. You know, we've kind of brought up this stretch a bunch on this podcast. Um, I believe they have one game against a team with a winning record because the Grizzlies are, per- are 500 right now, right? Yeah, and that one game is against a team that's against the worst road team in the NBA among, like, winning teams. Yeah, I mean, an extremely favorable schedule. Right. Um, well, and, and just to close that, they're playing in New Orleans. So the only game they play against a team with a winning record is, you know, a team that can't win on the road. So even in even by, oh, this is a team with a winning record, they're the easiest one. The other thing that they have going for them is they have head-to-head games against the Grizzlies, against the Spurs, against teams that they need to beat. So even though they don't control their own destiny right now, they're four back uh, with only two head-to-head matchups against the Grizzlies, you're looking at a situation where you can impact your own position in the standings and you just need a little help from a Grizzlies team that's facing an incredibly difficult stretch. And the Pelicans have already won two games against the Grizzlies this year so if if you just split those remaining two games then that means you have have the head-to-head tiebreaker. I've maintained that this is going to come down to the wire the entire time and I I still think that's going to be the case. They've got to make up four games with 18 to go. I think it's going to be really close. Right it's really not that difficult to do the do the math here. They're four back they need to win one of those two games. That would put them three back with 16 other games around that, right? So they need to make up three games over that stretch. They would probably need to go 11-5 and while the Grizzlies went 8-8, and and the Pelicans are in the playoffs. And we've mostly seen this year that the Pelicans can take care of business against the teams they're supposed to take care of business against. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just got to avoid, I guess, performances like the that first game against the Timberwolves. For sure. And the Grizzlies, you know, I mentioned that they have this really difficult schedule um, by opponent winning percentage. It's the second hardest in the NBA behind the Wizards. Their final 15 games, they have 10 games against teams that are currently over 500. So just to put, they have nine more games in the Pelicans against teams that are over 500. Three of those games against teams that are under 500, two of them are the Pelicans. 
they don't exactly get to rest in those games. Those that's a team that's beaten them twice. They have another game against the Spurs. So there's a very reasonable chance that they struggle mightily over that final stretch. They're they've won four of their last five, but they've lost six of their last ten. This is not a team that's playing its best basketball in in the final latter in the latter stages of the season. I saw someone put out a power rankings today and they said, quote, the Pelicans need a miracle to make the playoffs because they lost to the Timberwolves, one of their 82 games, which I think that's a bit extreme. Like, I don't think that they're in much of a different situation now than they were uh, last week. Yeah, miracle is definitely overstating it. You know, I'm personally not as optimistic as like the 538 model, which still still believes that the Pelicans are going to get in, but 62%. Yeah, that, that's a little high. That's a little high. Um, but I still think there's a very good chance. And what I'm rooting for above all else is it just comes down to Game 82. Because uh, uh, Game 82, do or die, is you know one of the most fun things that, that can happen in the NBA. I, I still remember that Nuggets-Timberwolves game that came down to the final game of the regular season, went into overtime. One of the best NBA games I've ever seen. So, I don't know. Keep that one in mind on your calendar. April 15th in San Antonio. Well, and so San Antonio, yes, they also have the Kings on Wednesday. The Pelicans and the Kings are currently tied. They have the exact same record. Uh, the Pelicans have the tiebreaker. For whatever reason, no every, no one is willing to talk about the Kings, who have the best record of any team since the All-Star break in that group. Uh, and they can pull by themselves into the ninth spot if they win on Wednesday. That's a huge game for the Pelicans. Did you see that uh, the Kings were down three the other night, and they had their call to play out of a timeout, and Luke Walton did not put in <laughs> Buddy Hield into the game. Uh, right, the guy who you know won the three point contest at All Star Week, and you know maybe the best shooter in the entire league. Yeah, he can shoot. Right, Th- there was a game earlier this season that they put Redick in, and he didn't take a shot in the similar situation. And I was like, why didn't the play get designed for Redick? The idea that would be like not having him on the floor at all, which. Why? Why even have them at that point? Yeah, you know, if you don't trust them, don't don't have them there. Uh, it, very bizarre. Uh, before we get out of here, can I just wax poetic about Duncan Robinson? <laughs> that dude is freaking ridiculous. Like the way that he can catch off of movement, set his feet, and, and get a shot up with somebody draped all over him, and and swish it is incredible. I mean, uh, a contender for purest jump shot in the NBA, non-step Curry division. Non Splash Brothers division. Yeah, he he reminds me a lot more of Clay Thompson than Steph Curry in terms of being a shooter. Like he has that same type of like size, gorgeous, just rise and release uh, type of shot. Let's see. The thing that is amazes me about him is you know he's come in and done what Austin Rivers has failed to do for the last few years, which is just only take threes and layups. Uh, let's see. When's the last time he took a two-pointer? <laughs> okay, against the Wizards, seven for eleven from three, one for one from two. Uh, against New Orleans, he took fourteen three-pointers, zero two-pointers. Against the Magic, before that, he took twelve three-pointers, zero two-pointers. Uh, against Milwaukee, the game before that, he took seven threes and one two. So over his last four games, he has taken. I will do this math in real time to show off. Uh, Ten twenty. 30, 44 three-pointers, and two two-pointers. 
he can shoot the hell out of it, man. Uh, <laughs> he almost single-handedly brought Miami back uh, against New Orleans the other night. But, yeah, man, Duncan Robinson, he could be on my team any day. Undrafted. Yeah, I, he already set the record for Sorry. most threes by an undrafted player in a single season. So, yep, uh, we will talk to you next week on Birdwatch. Uh, appreciate you guys for listening. Peace.